Uh, so today, as we talk about Unstoppable, it is really about making disciples then and making disciples now. Uh, we wanted a context. So when you look through the book of Acts, especially in the early church, uh, making disciples wasn't out of a vacuum. It wasn't out of a perfect scenario. It was full of challenges and they were able to do so. And we also want to apply that in our current context, which are full of challenges, uh, which is why we have the food bank, we have the irony, we have all the different initiatives uh, so that we wanted people to know that with God, uh, you are better, you are stronger, and you are able to work through this season of life with greater uh, belief and trust and all that God has for you, all right? Now, uh, but today, as we zoom into Acts chapter 15, we're going to talk about the Jerusalem Council. I have a little phrase there. It's called a tipping point. Uh, the reason I wanted to do so is because you must understand, by the time we reach Acts chapter 15, uh, the Bible tells us the early church was about 20 years old, which uh, about maybe 18 to 20 years old, all right? It's around there. Uh, which means that uh, post-resurrection, happy birthday to the church, uh, the church has grown. It started with Jerusalem. And I think the first eight chapters of the book of Acts tell the story of Jerusalem what happened in the temple, how a lot of priests came to know God, the healing of the lame person. And then, verse 9, verse, uh, chapter 9, chapter 10, the Bible tells us how the gospel went to Judea and Samaria. In that little story, I talk about a person called Cornelius and Peter, uh, which really the tipping point, if I can say it that way, where the Gentile world can actually come to know God. And then eventually you got the person by the name of Saul, and uh, <clears throat> we call him Paul. Uh, and then because of the persecution, a lot of people gotten saved, especially in Antioch. All right, uh, let me just kind of give you the map a little bit so that you can kind of follow me. You got Jerusalem, you got Judea, Samaria, and then you go all the way to Antioch. Antioch became a very critical, important kind of a church because it's so-called the first Gentile league kind of a church. Uh, the Jews went there, preached the gospel. Hellenistic Jews, uh, Hellenistic Gentile came and loved the gospel and then they began to embrace God. So lots of the uh, gotten safe. Uh, so that story tells us a little bit about how Antioch actually sent Paul, which is Acts chapter 13, to his first missionary trip, which is on your left. He went to Cyprus, the island. Uh, in fact, that's where he came from. And then eventually he went to, uh, to the top part, which is Asia Minor, where he went to Derby, Iconium, Pamphylia, you know, and Lystra. He went to all these places uh, to share the gospel. So Acts chapter 13 and 14, which is what uh, Pastor Balan trying to cover uh, last weekend, tells that little story. So by the time we reach to Acts 15, the gospel has grown for about 18 to 20 years and now it moves beyond the Jewish state and then to the Gentile world. It kind of poses something. I call it the tipping point was because it is in Acts 15, you see there's a clarity, at least religiously, there's a clarity between Judaism and Christianity. There seems to be a, what we call a schism or potentially a departation of uh, Christianity from the Judaistic world. It became very, very clear. The basis, the belief, and we kind of work through all of that. Uh, historically, it is a very important meeting because it tips uh, how, what does it mean to get saved? Uh, so prior before that, for almost 20 years when Judaism was mixed with Christianity, a lot of people are wondering, how do I become a Christian? All the Jews grew up in the very Judaistic culture, the Mosaic law, 
uh, following through all of that are very critical. So there is a mix and match of how, what do you mean to become a Christian? How much of a mosaic law should I follow? Uh, if I don't follow, do I become a Christian? And all this tension are worked through in this particular chapter. All right, so we're going to begin uh, by reading Acts chapter 15. What I wanted you to note that little map was because Paul eventually and Barnabas uh, travel from Antioch back to Jerusalem to address and to wrestle with all the issue that I just talked about. All right, let's read Acts chapter 15. So the Bible says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. So where do they come from? They came from Judea. So these people are those people who are very zealous over Judaism. Obviously, they heard about the Gentiles getting saved. So they travel uninvited by themselves towards Antioch. And when they went there, they met the believers and they were teaching them this. They were saying that unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be so they are trying to tell the people Christianity is a surgery religion. If you don't have the surgery, you cannot, you cannot become a Christian. You cannot actually receive that salvation. Uh, then this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. That's a little understatement uh, because I'm sure there's a lot of big debate. And with them, and so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So the scenario, the stage was set. Uh, Paul just got back from uh, Acts chapter 13. Uh, he did uh, almost spend a year and he saw how God tremendously blessed. What a trip he had. So many Gentiles got and saved. He came back. In fact, Acts chapter 14 rejoiced that God has opened a door to the Gentile world. That was the conclusion in Acts chapter 14. So in Acts chapter 15, while they were still very happy, then the Judaizer came and told them that, you need to be circumcised in order for you to be safe. As a conflict, they decided to go to Jerusalem. Why go to Jerusalem? Because that's a HQ. Uh, by then, there's no Bible, so to speak. Uh, they cannot have anything to refer to. So they have to go back to the apostle and to the elders so that they can have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. All right, next, we look at verse 3. Uh, so the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, which is what I show you in a map, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. Uh, so by then, the hottest news, the one that's in Malaysia, Kini, the one that's in the star, it's not about who's going to get be the prime minister. The hottest news is the Gentiles had been converted. There's a lot of people getting saved. And then we look at verse 4. Uh, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees to up and say, now, hold on, isn't it the Pharisees, the one that crucified Jesus? Very true, because the Bible talks about all the Pharisees worked together with a Roman governor and then decided to put Jesus at the cross. And all of a sudden, 20 years later, you got a whole bunch of Pharisees. They are party of the Pharisees in the Christian believers setting, which means that there's a whole bunch of Pharisees that God has saved. You know, if you're wondering why did the Pharisees got saved? It is never because they remember the Sermon on the Mount. It is never because they remember what Jesus has to teach. They all got saved simply because of an event called resurrection. Remember, Peter preached that message. Paul preached that message. They just go around telling people, this Jesus whom you crucify is alive. And this is a proof. And in fact, by then you get hundreds of them who were still alive. They were still telling people that Jesus is alive. So the Pharisees now became a Christian. And then because of the 20 years of Judaism, 
they were mixed with all that thinking. So then they said this. They said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, not only circumcision, now they took out the entire law of Moses and said that you must keep that law of Moses. Now, if you know, uh, the Judaism has pretty much translated all the law from ceremonial law, civil law, moral law into what we call 613 laws that you need to keep. So it says that from now on, for you to become a Christian, you must then observe to all the laws of Moses. Now, this is what happened. Next verse. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He says, brothers, and you will know that from now onward, Peter will speak, and then Paul and Barnabas will speak, and then James will speak. All three authority figures begin to give their opinion to support this little thing called, what does it mean to get saved? So he says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He says, guys, guys, listen, listen, listen. Pharisees, you can make your decision. Uh, all the others, you can make your own decision. But I want you to know, prior before all of you make the decision, God already made His choice. God already made His decision. He says, how did God make His decision? Because God chose me among all of you from my lips to preach the gospel to the Gentiles so that they may believe. Now, if you recall, this story happened in Acts chapter 10. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter had a dream. It was in Cornelius, Caesarea over there, which is very much towards the coast part of uh, the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that he had a dream. And uh, Cornelius had a dream, which is a very devout man who gave arms and feared God, you know. And uh, so he had a, both had a dream. And through both dreams, and God spoke to them that God is going to do something incredible in the Gentile world. Remember that? Now, when Peter met up with Cornelius, he, was, he wasn't very kind actually to the Gentile world. How do I know that? Let me show you a verse. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, this is what Peter said to them. He, said, he says, you are well aware to the Gentile world that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit the Gentile. He says, you know what? For me to come to a house, there's a big no-no because in the Jewish world, they are very prideful and they treat the Gentile world as second class. He says that, you know, in our law, we're not supposed to be together, cannot. But God has chosen me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. In another word, Peter is literally telling the, the Gentile world, he says that, you know, I used to call you unclean. Can you imagine? So this is how Peter and the rest of the Jews treat the Gentile world. We are the upper class. You are the second class. You are unclean. I'm clean. Uh, can you imagine going around telling that I'm better than you, I'm cleaner than you, I'm smarter than you? And that is the way the Jewish thing. So Peter wasn't very kind at all. But in that incident, he saw God did something incredible. And then he went on to tell the story. He explained by saying this. He says, God who knows the heart. I love that. You know, oftentimes people ask me the question. He says, Pastor, uh, what if I, what if I, you know, I accept Christ and I murder someone and I repent, you know. Uh, will God forgive me? And I do that intentionally. You know, God doesn't just look at an act. God look at both an act and our heart. So I want you to know that God, knowing the heart of the people, the hunger of the Gentile, He says, show that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. Now, the rest of the couple of statements, you will find that Peter began to draw the, the contrast between us and them. 
us the Jews and them the Gentile world. He began to kind of draw that little. He wants to show them that there is no distinction. So he tells them by saying that, you know what? How do I know that God embraced them? Remember in Acts chapter 2, when we were waiting for the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came, we all spoke in tongues. He says the very same incident that happened in Acts 2 happens right in front of my eyes in Acts chapter 10. He says, Acts chapter 10, I was just, was just kind of, you know, babbling, you know, just kind of telling the gospel. All of a sudden, the Bible says, God showed up and everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, it exactly happened the same, Acts 2 and Acts 10. He did not discriminate between, remember, us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. And, and this is for the first time, for the first time, Peter stood up and tell all the people, he says, this is how someone gets saved putting their faith at the work of the cross. And then he went on to elaborate in verse 10, Acts 15. He says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the neck of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He was trying to tell the people, you know what, when you look at our Jewish history, we are the worst. We are the worst hypocrite. We put so much law on us that all of us fail. Look at where we are. Look at the nation of Israel. We just could not do what the law requires us to do. He says that, why would you want to put it upon their neck? Why you, that's a yoke that will carry them and they'll be weary about it. In verse 11, he says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Remember, us, we, they, always that little tension. So Peter was trying to tell them, he says, you know what? For, for, I know for so many years we followed the law. But the law actually led us to a spot to realize that we could not do it. We literally needed to do it only by the grace of God. So Peter in the earlier verse says that it is by faith. That's our portion. Our portion is to put our trust in God. God's portion is to extend His grace to us. It is by faith. It is uh, uh, by, uh, by faith through grace. All right, or by grace through faith, and that's what the, the little coy of how everyone of us gets saved. Now, so after Peter finished his statement, next is Paul and Barnabas. So the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Uh, what story are those? Those are the stories in Acts chapter 13 and 14. If you go back and read, it talks about how Paul went to Derby, Iconium, and uh, so many different miracles. A pro-council, which is one of the officers of Roman uh, Empire, was gotten saved. Uh, the Bible talks about how Paul had a healing, a lame person walk. Uh, almost the same story like Acts chapter 3, which is what happens in the temple, or Acts chapter 2. Sorry, Acts chapter 3. And then uh, the Bible also talks about how Paul was being stoned, and they began to tell about all the miracles that God had done through their hands. And after they were done, then you got Acts chapter 15, verse 13, James, which is the brother of Jesus. So Peter spoke, talked about his experience in Acts 10. Paul and Barnabas spoke, talked about their experiences in Acts 13 and 14. And then finally, James, which is the brother of Jesus. Now remember, uh, when we read about how Peter was being persecuted in Acts 11 or so, uh, we had that little story how Peter went away for a little bit of a time and he handed the baton to James. So James became literally the leader that leads the entire council in that moment. So James 
stood up and spoke his final thought. And this is why he says, he said, when they finished, James spoke up, he says, brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, which is Peter, his Greek name, Simon, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name, for the Gentiles. So he says, God has chosen, you know, using Peter to do that. And then, and then by the way, he says, the word of the prophets are in agreement with us as it is written. You know, something about when it comes to biblical belief, you always go back to the authority of the Bible. You find that throughout the Bible. It wasn't just, I think, I feel. No, no, it always goes back to that. So James went back to the authority of the Bible, and then he says that he quoted a verse in Amos chapter 9 that says this, After this I will return, rebuild David's fallen tent, which is a tabernacle of David, which is an incredible New Testament picture of what it means, because in the tabernacle of David, uh, everybody, there's no more veil. People were just worshipping God together, 24 hours. So God always talked about restoring the David's uh, tabernacle, which is why when Jesus Christ died, the veil was torn into two so that the presence of God is well inviting everybody to come. He says, its ruins, I will rebuild, I will restore it, and the rest of the mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does this thing, things known from long ago. So James stood up and then he gave the final verdict. He told the people, you know, all that we are seeing today is exactly what the Bible says. He brought back to the authority of the Scripture. You know, when I, when I just think about that authority of the Scripture, I, I want to say that as I do a lot of discovering God with a lot of people, I find that a lot of people have always have different opinions about who God is. And oftentimes I ask them, uh, how do you substantiate this opinion? So a lot of people always say, I don't know. I, I, I just think this is how it should be. I always tell people that if you are believe in a something that you think that it should be, it will never be validated. You know why? Because everybody can has an opinion. Ask a thousand people, everybody has an opinion. When it comes to belief system, there has to be substantiate. Which means that when we think about who God is, when we think about the belief system of Christianity, whatever, there is a whole chunk of substantiation. There is a text. There is the Bible. There's an authority that tells you this is who God is. So I met people who tells me that, hey, Pastor, you know, actually I believe in God. And um, I wake up morning, I look to heaven, I pray to God. I say, could you describe this God? I don't know how to describe because I just know that there is a God. Uh, so I want to encourage you, if that is what you believe, then it is your job to try to substantiate that, that who God is. It's just like if you were to go to any of my son and say, hey, you know, who provides all this? My dad. Could you describe a little bit about your dad? He says, I don't know, I don't know him. You cannot. Then the person will walk away and say, that's a strange dad right? Substantiating who, what you believe is very important. The authority of the scripture. So here it is, James go back to the authority of the scripture and says that this is what the Old Testament, the prophets has been talking about, which is God is going to reopen the door for the Gentile world. And I love the next verse. Because the next verse, James says this. He says, it is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. If you are watching this, could you say that together with me? That we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You know, I like the little phrase. In fact, that should be one of the little phrases that navigates everything that we do. Our job is to not make it complicated for people to encounter God. Our job is not to make it complicated for people to believe in God. Because it's really by His grace and our faith in Him. You know, when I reflect back on a personal basis, sometimes our action doesn't align 
uh, with what we say, right? Sometimes in doing so, we actually make it difficult. I remember talking to someone who actually, uh, it was a husband and wife, and, and I think the wife was the one that, uh, the husband actually was the one that said that I struggle to become a Christian because of my wife. It's not because of what the Bible says. Because of the way she lived her life. And I will never forget that I need to break that news to that wife and say that, did you know one of the main reasons he doesn't want to become a Christian because you have made it complicated. You have made it difficult. How? You know, sometimes just the way we live our life, we are inconsistent with what we think, what we say, and how we live. Right? So, so sometimes we do that. Sometimes we go beyond personal. We go to a religious organization. Uh, some people say you can only become a Christian if you practice the Sabbath accurately every Saturday. In fact, there's a movement for it. And they will literally look at all the Christians and say, if you don't do that, then you are not the actual Christian. Make it difficult. Uh, some people say that when you become a Christian, you must practice a Jew certain Jewish name. When you pray to God, you must say it in a certain way. That makes you more Christian than the others. Why would we want to make it more difficult? Because the Bible says, do not make it difficult. It is really by grace, through faith, the simplicity of the gospel. Uh, I hope that this little verse kind of guide you through in your life. Now, and then James continued to explain further. He says, instead we should write to them, and eventually they wrote a letter uh, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals. It uh, has this kosher, which is the way uh, how a certain animal must kill, you know, for the Jewish world, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. Now, can you imagine? Uh, this is a bit contradictory, right? Because here they are, they say, forget about the law of Moses, by grace, through faith. And all of a sudden, James, after telling them all that, came back and picked up four scenarios and says, could you do this? You know, James wasn't trying to tell them, go back to the law of Moses. It wasn't that. James was actually trying to tell them, you must now think with what we call the law of love. What is the law of love? Okay, I'll come to that shortly. James was trying to tell the Gentile Christian, he says, for you, for the sake of unity, for the sake of everybody coexisting together, could you, the Gentile Christian, please take into consideration the four things the Jewish world are very particular about. And then he says, food to idols. And uh, in fact, if you read the Bible, 1 Corinthians 8 and, you know, two times Corinthians, Paul deal with it. And every time Paul deal with the food offering to idols, it was actually a contextual answer. He never tell them, Paul tell it very clearly. He says that you are free to eat whatever you want, right? He says that the demons is not attached to the food. But he says, you always think about law of love. He says, if you buy those food that is in the meat market that no already offered to idols, you stumble your brother. He says, don't do that. He says, but when you go to someone's house, don't ask where does the food come from. If he could make for you, he just eat it because what you eat will never destroy you. Are you still with me? So Paul was trying to help them to use a new law to navigate them for the rest of their life. And the Bible called that the law of love. I'm going to give you the three different versions. Paul says it, Jesus said it, then Paul says it, and then James said it, okay? Now, so in John chapter 13, at the last supper, when Jesus was walking through with the disciples uh, and come to the final before he went to the cross, he told them, he says, I'm going to give you a new command. 
right? In fact, he says, you can take all that I teach, narrow down, 613, narrow down to only one command. For now onward, you only remember one command. He says this command is love one another, and then he tells them, as I have loved you. He didn't say that love one another just as your version, your version, your version, your version. He says, no, not the Peter version, not the John version, not the James version, not the, not the Thomas version, whatever. He says, love one another, my version, the Jesus version, as I have loved you. And all of us know that the Bible tells us that Jesus laid down his life for another. That was the version of love. He says, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said that, takes all that you know about Christianity. He says, boils down to only one love, uh, one law, which is the law of love. James, which is the brother of Jesus, said it this. This is how he said it. He says, if you really keep the, he called it the royal law, which is the most important law, the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, because that's what Jesus said, you are doing right. James himself called it the royal law, just to help you to understand. Paul's version, this is how he said it. He says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he went on. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. I respect their custom. To those under the law, I became one under the law. Though myself and not under the law, so that I can win those under the law. Then to those who are not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. He says, for those who are lawless, I'll be as lawless. But knowing well that I am under this God's law, I will, do, I will not do anything that violates. God's law, uh, so you know, so that I will not be uh, do everything that the lawless people do, but I will go to that extent uh, to kind of know them and be with them without violating God's law. Why? So that I can win. And then to the weak, I became the weak. And then he went on and to tell people, he says, you know why? Because now we are not operating on the law of Moses, we are operating from the law of love. Now, so what do we learn? What do we learn in Acts 15 is very simple. Now, of course, if you read, continue to read Acts chapter 15, they wrote the letter, sent it to everybody, was very happy. At some point, Paul and Barnabas wanted to revisit it back, which set the stage for his second missionary journey trip, which is Acts chapter 16. And I hear the disagreements with Barnabas, uh, and then they went different ways, and they agreed to disagree. And then Acts chapter 16 happened, and then eventually his second missionary trip. But what was interesting is this. So what do we learn? We learn two things from Acts chapter 15. Number one, we are saved by grace through faith. And none of our works, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I led someone to Christ. And when I tell him about the gospel, at the end of the, of the day, he asked me, he said, so what should I do? I said, you know what? You just say a prayer, invite Jesus Christ into your life, meant it with your heart, with your mouth confess and your heart believe. That's how you become a Christian. And then he looked at me, he says, huh? He said, oh. I said, that's right, that's how. He says, you, you mean I don't need to do anything? I said, no, no, no. You, you mean I don't need to give money? No, 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 no. You mean I don't have to? No, no, no. The Bible says it is by your mouth confess and your heart and your heart believe. It's as simple as that, right? Now, I do know then, once you become a Christian, well, we do so many things. We've got food bank, we've got irony. So many of you would do all the volunteers. Why do we do all of that? 
we do all of that not because so that we get saved. We do all of that not for salvation. We do all of that because of salvation. Because of the love of God that's shed in our hearts. Thus we give. Thus we share. Thus we volunteer. Thus we serve because of the love of God that is in our heart. So we learn that we are saved by grace through faith. Secondly, we learn to live with the law of love. The law of love asks this question all the time. What does love require me to do? Not what does law require me to do, which means that today when you go back to your home and you've got a lot of household, everybody is busy, you ask yourself, what does love require me to do? In this entire pandemic, everybody was suffering. You ask yourself, what does love require me to do? We came out with irony. We came out with food bank. We came out with everything that we know possible because we asked ourselves, what does love require me to do? In fact, I even spoke to the YB in Pucho. What's the possibility for us to be a vaccination center? It's just that our place is not big enough. And we wanted to do that. You know why? Because we asked ourselves a simple question. What does love require us to do? So the Bible tells us, just as James stood up and says, do not make it difficult for people to encounter God. And then he says that this is the royal law. You love others as yourself. So from moving forward from now, we should ask ourselves a simple question all the time. What does love require me to do? Now, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And that was the conclusion in Acts chapter 16, verse 5. And because of the door of the Gentiles now officially broke open, many came to faith and they grew daily. Hey, you know what? Just before we go, I want to point you to this little slide. Uh, uh, we don't know what to call it. We got, we got so many suggestions. I decided to call it Love to Connect. I love to connect has a lot, kind of a little background story uh, to read, okay? And I can only share with you my heart. Uh, ever since pandemic, we don't get to do a lot of face-to-face. But I do know on a weekly basis or once every two weeks or so, I will have people that pop in a message, a text and say, hey, you know, Pastor, uh, we've been watching uh, your service online and we are blessed. And, and you've got different category of people. Just in fact, last week, I found out one of my classmates has been watching us for months. And now say, hey, you know, I've been watching you, team, you know, that kind of a thing. And, uh, but I remember a couple of months ago, I received a text. Actually, it was just about maybe one and a half months ago of someone who texts me and says, Pastor Tim, uh, kind of watch your online, you know, and, uh, but I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm so shy and I don't even know how to approach. Uh, so we kind of had a couple of, you know, text exchange and, and then eventually this person came for discovering God, accepted Christ and uh, came regularly on our online service and I invited this person to join the life group. Uh, but was so shy that the person was so reluctant, was so afraid of being judged or so whatever and the person was uh, just very reserved. But ultimately, this person came from online service to discovering God, to consistent online service, uh, to get to know someone and then eventually now this person is exploring a life group. So last night, I text this person, I said, it's not bad, right? When you join a community, then, then this person say, yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm getting used to it. I am trying to reach out to a broad category of people. And I call it love to connect. Love to connect is my heart 
to everyone out there. We love to connect with you. Now, you may not love to connect with us. You struggle to connect, but we are trying to tell you we love to connect. So what we plan to do is uh, once a month, uh, we carve out a lunch time where we have very small group of people, maybe about eight people or less. And then if you were to sign up according to the dates, we will make sure we send you lunch and then we will have lunch over Zoom. Uh, food is a universal language. Uh, we can talk, we can chat. Uh, I'll be there. I'm happy to get to know you. I'm happy to answer questions that you may have. Uh, so there is a broad category of people. Uh, some of you potentially walked away from God. You just needed a fresh conversation. Uh, some of you may be wanting to know more about our church. Uh, some of you may have uh, some question, burning question in your heart. You know, our heart is, we just want to serve. Our heart is, we do not want to make it difficult. Our heart is, what does love requires me to do as a senior pastor? And I'm trying to reach out to as many people and say, hey, you know what? Uh, we can always do lunch together over Zoom. We make sure the lunch pack goes to you. All you needed to do is to tell us, hey, I'm happy to have a chat. And then who knows? In that little chat, uh, it can be a turning point uh, for your life and for God to invade your world. So please do sign up. If you are not part of our church, you are watching us, you are wondering, you are thinking, you are having questions, you, you walked away from God, and you, you know, whatever category, it doesn't matter. Our heartbeat is we love to connect. All right? Uh, I'm going to pray as we bring all this to a close, and then we'll go to dialogue. Okay, God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you because, God, every time we come together in your presence, reading the Word of God, there is a component in the Word of God that will always change us and shift our heart and our mind. And today, we learn this big question. What does love require me to do? God, I pray that everyone, as we listen to this message, we will ask ourselves that royal law question. What does love require me to do in my family, in my community, in my household, uh, in my office, and beyond? God bless everyone that listened to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.